Futurized goes beneath the trends, tracking the underlying forces of disruption in tech, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. Join me, futurist Trond Arne Unheim, PhD author, investor, and serial entrepreneur, as I discuss the societal impact of deep tech, such as AI, blockchain, IoT, nanotech, quantum, robotics, and synthetic biology, and tackle topics such as entrepreneurship trends for the future of work. I'm a research scholar in global systemic risk, innovation, and policy at Stanford University. On Futurized, I interview smart people with a soul, founders, authors, executives, and other thought leaders, or even the occasional celebrity. Futurized is a bi-weekly show preparing you to think about how to deal with the next decade's disruption so you can succeed and thrive no matter what happens. Futurized, conversations that matter. If you're new to the show, seek particular topics or are looking for a great way to tell your friends about the show, we've got the episode categories. Those are at futurized.org slash episodes. I am the co-author of Augmented Lean, a human-centric framework for managing frontline operation and the author of Health Tech Rebooting Society's Software, Hardware and Mindset Future Tech, How to Capture Value from Disruptive Industry Trends, Pandemic Aftermath, How Coronavirus Changes Global Society, the Disruption Games, How to Thrive on Serial failure and of leadership from below how the internet generation redefines the workplace for an overview you can go to trondenheim.com books at this stage futurize is lucky enough to have several sponsors and to check them out go to futurized.org sponsors if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast or to get an overview of other services provided by me including how to book me for keynote speeches please go to futurized.org store we'll consider all brands that have demonstrably positive contributions to the future. Before you do anything else, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter on futurist.org, where you can find hundreds of episodes of conversations that matter to the future. Please also leave a positive review on iTunes. Thanks so much. Tiffany, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Look, I'm interested in what this conversation is going to bring because you have such a fascinating set of issues that you care about and you're such a charismatic speaker on on all these topics that I think they're not only important academically they're they're actually important in our life and there's this hybrid um reality that we're we're sort of moving into that I want to discuss with you where things are not only radically different far into the future, but where things are changing, you know, perhaps at a speed and with, with some ramifications that actually matter in our lives uh, right now and matter to the way we even uh, uh, bring up our kids and, and, and the, the world that, that they will inherit from us. So um, Tiffany, just let me see if I can get this straight, but you're, you're a bio undergrad, so bio is a big part of uh, what you're up to. So this was uh, NYU and then PhD in molecular bio, Princeton. Um, and then you have stints in Cairo and bioengineering at Stanford, running around a lot of consulting work and writing and some startups in there. Uh, I know you're working on some book length work, uh, non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council with a fairly wide portfolio. You're also a guitarist. That fascinates me. Obviously, I'm a guitarist. This is good stuff. And then biohacking. So you you have a bit of that uh, irreverent nature. Um, how did all of this thing get started, Tiffany? You were 12 and you had this in mind? 
Uh, no, I wish I wish I could tell you that there was some grand master plan that I've been following all along, but it's simply not true. And perhaps you find when you talk to people, I do as well, that really the truth is very few of us have had a grand master plan. Basically, what I did was say yes to things that were interesting. Uh, right. So, you know, when I was a kid, I was always interested in the world around me. Uh, I was that awful child who took apart her father's record player and then put it back together. Not quite right. So records always played a little too fast after that. But I was really interested in how things worked and in the world around me. And my father's actually a chemist. So I grew up on some weekends washing glassware in my dad's chemistry lab. But what I really thought for a long time was that I was going to be a medical doctor. That's what I thought it meant to be a biologist. I didn't know any biologists. And fortunately, when I got to college at NYU, there were a lot of interesting people doing a lot of interesting things. And so many of them were willing to take time to talk to an 18-year-old. And I think that makes a huge difference when we're thinking about education and the, the purpose of how we're planning our lives, those really human connections make a big difference. So I ended up in a genetics lab as an undergrad doing some really cool work on uh, C. elegans. It's a, a little worm uh, that is clear and you can do all kinds of cool stuff with. And right around that time, I started having this existential crisis where I thought I was going to be a doctor. My family certainly uh, was expecting me to be a doctor, but I started realizing that I was more interested in the things that people didn't know than the things that people did know. And so I started getting that kind of itchy feeling that I was heading in the wrong direction. I bet a lot of your listeners know that feeling. Uh, but again, fortunately, I had a lot of support. And so I ended up doing uh, a PhD instead of an MD after my undergrad. And actually, first, I worked for a pharmaceutical company for a little bit, which was great because I wanted to learn about industry as well as academia. So that was really nice. And I did my, uh, my PhD work at Princeton. It was sponsored by NASA. So from the beginning, I kind of had the, the foot in the door on that space uh, era. I also did some um, analog space missions where I was doing a simulation of being on Mars. And I did three of those actually while I was in graduate school. So um, we could have a conversation about whether that helped me day to day in the lab, but it certainly helped me get a bigger picture on not just what I was doing in the laboratory, heads down working on the science, but thinking much longer term. You know, what are the goals? Why am I doing science? Why do I care about the world around me? Why do I care about people and how that goes? And so that was really formative for me. And that's something that I've carried forward into my later work. And I'm really pleased to say in the last couple of years, I've really reconnected with the space community and have been looking at ways that biotech and some of these other exponential technologies are starting to move into that area. So I think I've, I've vaguely answered your question there. After graduate school, I was a professor at the American University in Cairo for some time. I helped them with their computational biology and genomics program and just did a lot of teaching for undergraduates on scientific thinking. That was actually a core course that was required by the university. How do you look at evidence? How do you gather evidence? How do you ask questions about the world around you? How do you update your thinking? And, you know, honestly, if I had to pick one thing at this point for my son to learn, it would be that. How do you look at the world around you and ask questions in a way that the answers actually mean something? And best of all, how do they keep 
raising more questions. So that's where I am right now. Fast forward, Cairo, Stanford, Singularity University, EY, um, the Atlantic Council, all these various opportunities have really helped me work on my capacity to formulate interesting questions. But then I think the communication piece is so important. And that's why I love what you do on this podcast, because it's not enough for us to do science, to do technology, to do business. I think we also have to talk to people about that as well. Our peers, um, the people more senior to us, but also, of course, the younger generations. Right. And now I have a bunch of questions and I'm just going to try to sort them in my head. I want to get to your kid and how how this translates to our kids in, in a second. But before I forget this issue about Mars. So simulating being on Mars is one thing. I happen to be not worried, but I just, I have a very distinct sense that people who are going to spend any real time on the moon or Mars, when they come back, or even if they don't come back, I think their perspective would have to really radically shift pretty quickly. That is my sense, not having done any simulations, just going through this motion in my head and speaking to a lot of people who who have had these discussions with themselves and others. How, how was your experience there? And, do, and are, is that kind of a worry or is is it just more of a realization that things become radically different once you kind of take the extraterrestrial perspective, because that's what it is. I think it's both a challenge and an opportunity. So from a straight up mental health perspective, I would say that doing those simulations were uh, particularly the one I did in the high Canadian Arctic up near the North Pole, just about the, the most difficult six weeks of my life. Um, becoming a new parent is also a very difficult challenge, um, but that was that was really tough uh, for a variety of reasons. You know, you're you're a really small group of people. We were a set of six, a crew of six, and so everything that you can think of that happens between people kind of gets blown up into much bigger things when you're in these very very small communities where there's actually stuff at stake. Right? If if something goes wrong and there's no one to help you on any reasonable timeline, that really changes how you think. So that was quite challenging. I will say though, that it did absolutely um, change my thinking about a lot of things. So um, it was the first time that I really understood climate change in a gut way. Now this was back in 2005. So this was a long time ago. But when I, you know, I looked at a map and I realized on my map, it was marked permafrost and I was hip deep in mud. I knew something was seriously wrong. And so that was a big awakening for me. But I think as well, just looking at how we live our lives and the choices that we make. I am still to this day, if you come over to my house, you will see, I am the crazy person that walks around the house and flips off the light switch if there's a room with nobody in it. Why? Because when I was doing Mars simulations, we had to go fill the generator in the middle of the night in order to have power. And so you don't waste electricity when you are fundamentally responsible for producing said electricity, right? And well, that doesn't make you were, crazy. That's how I grew up, but okay. <laughs> that's how you grew up too? Okay, good. I'm, I'm yeah. glad there's somebody else uh, who does that. But uh, Or thinking about your water usage. You know, If you are using water, that when you have to go out and gather the water, 
you think very carefully about how you're using that water. And so for me, I've brought that into my life now, thinking about sustainability issues, whether I'm working with individuals or whether I'm working with organizations. What are the inputs? What are the outputs? What do we really need? And then, of course, how do you remain flexible and adaptable? Because things go wrong in space and in space simulations. And you've got to be able to respond in a way that isn't um, just locked up, but that is creative and takes advantage of what you've got um, versus what you need. The last piece I want to share that I think is really important and that brings me back to the space community over and over again is this thing called the overview effect, which I'm sure you've heard of, which is when you kind of get away either from the earth or just from how you're living your daily life, it fundamentally changes your perspective. Um, really understanding how small and how precious we are, not just as humans, but as all of life on earth, that changes something deep inside a person. It certainly did it for me. And this is something that I would wish for every person out there. So the uncertainty that we all feel not even having gone through those experiences is very likely not going to get reduced in, in the near future. So it, it, let's make this assumption right now that you know, some amount of uncertainty and, and therefore some amount of resilience is is going to be asked for even of fairly young uh, people and, and maybe even children as we go into, uh, you know, this emerging world that we don't really know what's going to happen there. What in your mind do you think of as a parent uh, to prepare kids for it's not even a reality we can fully explain, but let's just assume for a moment that this uncertainty will, will be there. Uh, maybe they won't be experiencing the kind of isolation you had and the limited resource constraints, you know, in a space simulation. But certainly, um, I would conjecture, and, and it seems like you you, you agree that there, there's going to be dem there's a demand for being able to handle these kinds of situations in a way that perhaps our parents didn't, didn't prepare us for. So what does that do, given what we know about, you know, the lag of the education system, which, you know, is still like teaching us stuff that they were taught as our teachers, you know, 15, 20 years ago uh, from teachers who then learned that even, right? So there's a lag of almost 30 years in the education system. That doesn't seem to be a very good match with the world we're going into. <laughs> that was a very delicate way of saying that. Yes, I, I completely agree with that. And so, uh, you know, we're holding a tension in our minds, which is how do we prepare for a future that we can't actually see? Right. So I work as a futurist. You do the same thing. You know, it's my job to say what I think the future is going to be. And I say those things and I make predictions fully knowing that they're wrong. Right. It's like we say all models are wrong. Some are useful. And our job is to get to that useful piece. So when I think about what are we teaching our um, what are we teaching our children and how are we designing our systems? You know, words come to mind, words like humility, words like um, fail fast. Um, this is one thing that I work on a lot with my kid is understanding that you're going to get things wrong. 
And our school system does not reward the getting wrong of things. That's, that's totally not how the whole thing is set up. But I, I remember when I was in graduate school, the moment that I realized that my teachers didn't care whether I knew the answer, they cared how I would figure it out. The minute I understood that, everything changed for me as a learner and then eventually as a teacher. So for my son, I'm always asking him, I know you don't know how to do this. How are you going to figure it out? And we work on that with things like um, maker mindsets, right? How are you actually going to build a solution? And when it doesn't work, because it's not going to, how are you going to figure out what to do next? And we talk about needing this kind of resilience in organizations and companies as well. And we saw what happened over the pandemic, right? That this course of this really severe stress, it wasn't that anybody knew the answer, but everybody had to do something. So how do we start trying things out in a way that we're being humble and curious and honest and transparent about those results and moving it forward. When I think about what we're trying to prepare our children for, I think about world a world of abundance. I do think about that a lot. I do believe technology is moving us in that direction. But at the same time, I am really concerned about climate change and how that's going to be affecting day-to-day -day life as well as systems. And I don't think we are really preparing our children or even our young entrepreneurs to be ready for the types of shocks that I think are coming, that many of us think are coming just due to climate change alone. Then you layer technological disruption on top of that, and you start getting these really tectonic shifts that are likely to come in the coming decades. Tiffany, when you think about these changes, uh, for the moment, let's just stay in the role of a parent or a teacher even. Mm -hmm. Do you think that as a teacher, you have to go through the motions of learning to be resilient and learning to reflect in this very advanced way, uh, perhaps an adaptive way, before you can teach it? Or do you think that there is a way to guide somebody, the next generation, into some of these changes without necessarily having felt them or have a solution to them yourself? I think both theory and practice are going to be important. I, I like the idea as having some sort of theoretical background, some sort of philosophical or mindset to fall back on. I think that's really important, a way of preparing the field. But, you know, there's a difference between um, going out and searching for these types of shocks and not buffering against them quite so hard. So as a parent, my natural inclination is to protect my precious child from ever having to experience anything awful, right? Because I love him so much. But I know as an educator that I'm not actually doing him any favors if I never let him experience, even in a minor way, the types of adversity that we're talking about. So I, as a parent, have to fight against my natural instinct and just be like, you know what? Let him fail let him get something wrong, let him get hurt, let him break something, let him feel, you know, really feel what it's like when another person suffers. Don't try to hide that, but instead use that as a moment of ongoing personal growth. So that's how I'm approaching it. So there's one bit here that's about 
uh, teaching and and you know, we've talked about the teaching and mentoring you do as a as a parent but and also you know you have the role of the more formal education system and perhaps more informally the way that we are all mentors and perhaps need to seek out mentors for ourselves at at any given moment and perhaps more more than more than before and and they these uh, mentors become seemingly uh, quite important if you think about more, you know, your futurist hat and you start sort of looking at where this is going. So the multi-career normal is one thing that future, uh, the future work community has started to embrace. What is What does that mean to you, the, the idea, or, or is it even possible to limit uh, a discussion of the kind of the f- future of the workplace to kind of careers? It would seem that that's even a, a limiting frame when when you're you're talking about so many shocks, both if it were to be this technological abundance, or, and it, coupled with or not, you know, this sort of climate cataclysm or implosion of of, of climate that would perhaps simultaneously happen. It would seem to me that it's so much more complicated than learning to adapt to different things and you know have five jobs during your career. So, what kind of reality are we in your best estimation moving into and what does that sort of mean more 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 physically Mm -hmm. so i'm going to take a step back and explain where where i'm coming from when i think about these things and for me coming at this from um, a, a biology standpoint and a health standpoint what i'm seeing is a move towards longer, healthier lives for people for a variety of reasons. Um, And so if we are thinking about longer, healthier lives and perhaps radically longer, healthier lives, which is not impossible, certainly for some people, Mm -hmm. first of all, we could be talking about 70 or 80 year careers, right? And so if we're talking about an 80 career year, now that's more than twice as long as any career when for a hundred years ago, right? When people were thinking about what does it mean to have a company? What does it mean to have a career? What does it have mean to have these trajectories? So or if you were a ready, farmer, right? Then you were if right. you were a farmer. I mean you're you're done. You're you're 50. It's like you're you're tired. That's right. But, uh, the end. Yeah. <laughs> your 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 body is broken down. Particularly your to your point for knowledge workers, right? Folks like you and me who aren't out in the fields or on the factory floor or doing things that are are physically damaging our bodies. So if I'm looking at a 70 or 80 year career, how many jobs do you think that is? How many employers do you think that's working for? Pick a number. What's your favorite number? (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm just thinking about the average, uh, you know, duration of a company on Wall Street, which is not very long, right? So, I mean, you know, you're lucky if a company lasts a, a decade and most of us are not lucky enough to work for companies that last that long. So even just empirically, even if you were like on the average I would say an 80-year career, unless you work for some enormously stable government that still has lifetime employment, you're looking at, and even then, I think you would do uh, you do like 30 different jobs. My, my guess is 80 years, uh, at least a third of that you would be switching. So, mm-hmm. I mean, let's let's call it 25. 25 jobs, right. And that's assuming you're doing one job at a time, right? Some of us wear lots of hats or have a side hustle or do these various things, right? So let's say 25 jobs is kind of a a floor for our average. So the idea that I would do the same job for 25 employers, 
that sounds, first of all, boring. I don't know about you, but that's not going to work. But also remember the goalposts are constantly moving. So even if I were to be, say, a nurse for 75 years, what it means to be a nurse is going to fundamentally change over those 75 years. And of course, ironically, it's going to change faster and faster as time goes on. So as we're aging, it actually becomes harder empirically to keep up, right? Because this acceleration is happening. So for me, it's not just about thinking about how many jobs am I going to keep or how many careers am I going to have? But I think we also need to get into the mindset of thinking, you know, I'm not going to be working at the same rate for my entire 75 year career, right? Maybe every 10 years, we take a mini retirement for two years, reskill, upskill, refresh, work on our health, whatever it is, go to the moon, whatever you feel like. And then you come back and now you've got both a new set of skills that you've internalized as well as a new context and a new environment that you're entering into. Now, depending on what kind of person you are, that's either exciting or terrifying, right? Or For me, it sounds between. very liberating, but something yeah. in between. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And so, hmm. but then our systems aren't set up for that. Our educational system certainly isn't set up for that, right? The idea is kind of you go to school once, you go to college once, and then you're done. Now, you should be asking me, Tiffany, are you ready to go back to college? And the answer, of course, is no. I am at the point in my learning journey where I'm a master learner. So when I'm learning new things, I can't be sitting in a classroom with 500 other people listening to somebody talk at me. I can't, I can't do I just can't do it anymore, right? But I can Could you ever do it? And I, Could you ever do it? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I remember you, being you, able to do it when I was nineteen. <laughs> sure, yeah. um, I, I was because I could do never it do it. I, I was—I yeah. I don't know about you, but I, I suffered immensely. I mean, it's not suffering like you know, my life was ending, but it was. Education has been painful for me, and and the mm -hmm. sitting and listening part is is part of it. But it, the whole the whole industrialization of education, the, the whole period that we have gone through, which I think is over, by the way. Uh, I mean, my students don't sit down and listen the way I did, which I think is a good yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. So again, like we've got all these various models and I find it interesting. Uh, one of the things that I do a lot is I, I read a lot about history. I actually just finished this wonderful book about the middle ages. And there was a big piece in this book about uh, the rise of the university system a thousand years ago right? A thousand years ago. That's how long we've had this. And it came out of a, a, a journeyman apprentice system, right? And so what's interesting to me is this idea that we could be moving back into this journeyman apprentice system where you go towards people who are experts or are master practitioners, or even just a better practitioner than you are. You come to them, you learn, you contribute, and then you move on either to become a master practitioner yourself or to gain a new set of skills that you put together into something new. But again, this idea that we have one educational experience and that's sufficient to last us for a hundred year life where 75 years of that we're working, I think that's fundamentally incorrect. Uh, and we need to really be driving these new ways of learning. And so for me, again, going back to being a parent, I'm not teaching my kids stuff. I'm teaching him to love learning. I'm teaching him to love that, that feeling that you get when you realize you don't know something, 
you can respond to that in a couple of ways. And there's been some really interesting neuroscience on this. Knowing that you don't know something, again, is either a challenge or an opportunity. It either freaks you out or it makes you want to get out of bed in the morning. And I want to help turn the knob for as many people as possible to say, I don't know something, either because it's fundamentally uncertain or because somebody knows it and I'm not that person. But let me go find out and integrate that into something new. That's what I'd really like to see people moving toward. Tiffany, I want, I want to take us in a, in a direction which is perhaps a little more challenging because many times when we have these conversations, we assume endless curiosity and endless love of learning that has been constrained by these institutions. But in reality, that's not true for everyone, right? And, uh, you know, diversity and inclusion is a very big topic. And one of the reasons it is a, a big topic is that, well, sometimes it's the institutions that have crushed this love of learning that maybe is innate. Other times it is just that we are people of different skills and abilities, and sometimes we don't fully cope. And, and certainly a lot of people have problems coping with that kind of change that you are, are talking about that we now need to prepare for. What are your thoughts about that angle? Meaning, how are we as a society going to deal with the fact Let's just assume for a second that, you know, and this may not be correct, but there is a certain amount of the population for to whom this is very scary for very real reasons, because they, A, perhaps don't have the skills to adapt as fast, or B, have been discriminated against and have structural, uh, you know, structures working against them so that this is very difficult for them. I think the, the short answer is that we need to have a portfolio of offerings and to destigmatize some relative to others. So a university education, that is a very privileged thing, right? It's really expensive. You have to have the freedom to go full time to do that. If you have to work or raise a family while you're doing that, that is phenomenally challenging. So I'm excited by things that I see happening, for example, in the ed tech space that are looking at various ways of turning these knobs. Where can technology step in and help? Where are, is technology not going to help people, right? We talk a lot about things like Khan Academy online, which is wonderful. But if you're talking about hundreds of millions of people in rural India who don't have internet, that's it. You, you can't do it right? So what are the ways that we can do that? Um, I'm, so I'm interested in lots and lots and lots of pathways, not just a single pathway. And the, what I think in terms of um, systemically, what we also need to do is make it so that these pathways interconnect so that something, a type of learner who is successful in pathway A is able to translate some of that value into pathway B or pathway C. Right now, they're not great at talking to each other, right? You can get a certificate for something online, but if I'm a professor at Harvard, I don't know how to judge the value of that. So I think there's more connectivity for us to be working on among these systems and to figure out how to, how to move that value around. So that's one piece that I think is really important. Um, and the, the destigmatizing piece, I think, is also super, super important, because if we just pretend like everything is equally accessible to everyone, we're just perpetuating the same systems that got set up. Our, our systems to date are not fair. It's just that some of us have benefited from them. 
So how do we reinvest that into a system where more people come in? And like you said, at some times of your life, it might be more appropriate than others. Sometimes you are in a space where you can sit in a room and listen to people talk. And sometimes you are not for whatever reason. And getting more fluidity among those, I think, is uh, going to be a really important way forward. Tiffany, that's interesting. The question of value uh, was brought up, uh, or you, you brought up the word value several times. I think value is is crucial because there is now, perhaps increasingly, this reevaluation of, of of capitalism and certainly extractive capitalism for for lots of reasons. One one reason being environmental constraints. And and another reason, uh, perhaps, uh, e- even just being that technology potentially, in some ways, uh, kind of blows all expectations aside, and in other ways, perhaps will you know disappoint will disappoint us or will disappoint certain groups. So the question of value, I guess, I, I want to tie it both to this idea of diversity, because not not everyone perhaps will figure out how to monetize or or at least contribute value in a way that's sort of socially uh, e- easy to convert into something how how will value be understood in 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 our emerging uh, sort of future society what what is it that you think will happen to the economy so you're you're saying we will have an 80 year work life most people would say well what you're talking about is the elite the people who can afford the health care who can afford to sit and think and not work in these factories so that's one reason why, why this is complicated but even just the the general question of value what will a future society ascribe value to if not sort of economic capital well i think uh, we will continue to ascribe value to economic capital. I, I don't think we're going to get away from that. But we could also be valuing other things. You know, For example, we are not doing a good job ex- ascribing value to dignity, dignity in a working profession, which has led to all kinds of political and social problems. And as you highlighted with a lot of the things that I'm talking about are accessible to the elite, there is a possible future in which the rich get richer and healthier than they obviously are, uh, they are today, and everybody else is screwed. That is not a future that I'm interested in. I assume that is not the future that you are interested in. And so bringing together like-minded people who are willing to say something has to change in order to make sure that we are giving, uh, that we are building an abundant and dignified future for as many people as possible moving forward, I think is really important. Nobody wants to work a crappy job for 70 years. That's, that's, nobody wants that, right? Uh, I admit sometimes I think about retiring and how much I'm looking forward to that. But when I define what retiring means, it's different than how, say, someone would be doing it who has spent their lives working as a plumber or an electrician or a custodian or a sanitation engineer. Any of those pieces are different. So hmm. I think... There's the stories that we tell, there are the systems that we build, and then there are the ways that we have to extract value from these things. So for example, attention economy, right? Everybody makes money in the attention economy except me, and it's my attention that's being uh, monetized, right? So for example, in the biology space, I'm watching some really interesting movements that are happening that are flipping the model, say, around genetic data or health data, where they say, okay, if 
right now today, if you do uh, a DNA kit, for example, the company owns your DNA. The company owns my DNA who does that. And they can turn around and they can sell that DNA to anybody they want without my permission and without my knowledge. So I'm watching spaces here where people are flipping that model to say, no, actually that information is Tiffany's information. How does she monetize these transactions that were the back ends of these, you know, B2B transactions underlying these business models? How do we bring other people into that? The actual consumer, the actual patient, the actual client. And I think there's a lot of room here. There's a lot of room here for that kind of thing to happen in day-to-day life, not just biomedical stuff, but, you know, any, any of these things, you know, like for example, the traffic finding app that I use on my phone, they're taking my data from my phone, which I agreed to, you know, I, I clicked, I accept, but I'm not making any money off of that. In fact, they're feeding me ads. So they're making money twice, right? So Hmm. where are the places that we can start massaging that? And I, I think there's, there's a lot there. One more piece that I want to add to the question that you asked me, it has to do with automation. So we also have this very um, both illuminating but problematic story about the robots taking our jobs or the algorithms taking our jobs. And while there's a lot there to look at, although the estimates, we can get into the numbers on that as to whether how realistic they are. But what I see as a future is where humans and robots or humans and algorithms are working together, where the robots give us the superpowers to be safer, to be more efficient, to work fewer hours, to be more productive, to do other tasks, or to even free us up from these tasks that are the the degrading tasks, the the non-dignified tasks, to move people to other um, emphases or to be more focused actually on the human interaction that is really interesting to me. So think about healthcare again, for example, you know, this idea that, oh, the, the robots will take the nursing jobs away. Well, if the robots are doing the things that the nurses are not thinking of as healing, then that's important, right? Or, oh, the AI is going to be filling in the medical records. Every physician I have talked to lights up like a Christmas tree when I say that, because they know that they're not going to be spending time checking boxes. They're going to be spending time with people. And you don't become a healthcare provider because you want to check boxes on software. You become a healthcare provider because you want to help people. And so looking forward, this is the question that I bring to a lot of the rooms that I'm in. How are the automation that you're working on? How is the algorithms that you're working on bringing us back to the human part of being a maker, being a farmer, being a rancher, being a bus driver, whatever these things are, how are we getting back to the human side of it? That's what I think the purpose of technology is. Tiffany, it's, uh, um, I don't want to steal your point, but it's just when you said, you know, you become a doctor because you, you enjoy people, it just reminds me that uh, when I was in, what, fifth grade or something, I had to do an interview with a professional and a friend of the family was a physician and I interviewed this physician and to the question, you know, 
what is the one thing that you perhaps regret about your career choice? And, and he, uh, he said, well, I didn't realize that physicians had to work so much with people. So you could see this from, <laughs> you know, the, so, so maybe there, there was this engineering stage of, of, of a physician's life that some of them right. were, were also enjoying. Maybe not filling the boxes, but, but perhaps, you know, the analytics and the, and, 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 and the mechanics of, of, of how systems work around them. But uh, generally, I think you're right. We, uh, a lot of us want, want to work with people. Um, okay, so we have this challenging future. I want to talk a little bit more about the fact that, you know, your entire career is built around biology and, and health, but certainly biology as a basis. Biomanufacturing is this sort of mysterious new industry that few of us know an enormous amount about, but kind of many of us certainly in the futurist domain are starting to think that this could be one of the foundational new industries. The question is just, what does it mean? And um, the idealized version of it is some sort of non-extractive, non-fossil, beautiful thing that doesn't involve digging up metals and rare earth, uh, you know, problems and, uh, you know, causes very little uh, real environmental damage and can be regenerative. And there are so many words around this new industry. Where are we with that? And what is your best estimation of how to name this animal of biomanufacturing? What is it going to be? Is it just manipulating some nice molecules in, in a very sort of just a futuristic version of the the life science industry is going to be confined to sort of an industry or are we talking about a completely new way of doing every industry? So biomanufacturing is really cool because it's a way of looking at the 4 billion years of innovation that evolution has already taken on this planet and figuring out how can we stand on the shoulder of that particular giant to get somewhere cheaper, faster, cleaner, just all those things that you said. So one of the things that I think is really cool about relying on biological systems for this is that you can do it at multiple scales, right? So yes, you can do it just at the molecular scale. You can do it at the cellular scale, the tissue scale, the organism scale, the ecology scale. So for me, and, that's And that's what I think, just to be clear, that's yeah. sort of the scale that I think people think they understand. But I wanted yeah. you to sort of broaden that because I think that there is a lot more there, but it's just so hard to conceptualize how that would even mm -hmm. be possible. Because I think we have seen normal people who don't work with bioengineering have seen so few examples of anything other than that. Right. So there's there's also things like biomimicry, right, which is looking to the natural world for solutions like using um, wetlands as water treatment plants, essentially. What are the essential features of that? What can we either recapitulate as humans and kind of tear down to its component parts and then re-engineer? Or what can we do with the whole system to figure out how to make it more amenable to actual work? So biomanufacturing, for me, what's really exciting about it is the parameter space that we have to play in. So last year, uh, last summer, summer of 2022, um, you might remember there was a, this great AI called AlphaFold, which came out of the DeepMind Google folks, which is able to solve a protein structure from its sequence alone uh, in about 150 milliseconds. So I just said that in one sentence. It's actually hard for me to overemphasize how unbelievable 
that is. So people used to spend six years graduate school, eight years as a postdoc, solving one of these structures. Last summer, they released the structure of every protein known to man, 200 million of them. So that's amazing because just in terms of like an innovation piece, like all that foundational work has now been done to a first approximation. The, the structures are pretty good. They're not perfect. But all of that grunt work that would have gone into just getting that foundation set in order to be able to come up with a new material, a new process, a new organism, um, a new type of food, a new type of radiation resistance, any of these things. Now the building blocks are all there. They're out in front of us. And now it's the job of the human engineers to figure out how do I put those together in ways that will get me this thing that I'm looking for, right? What, whatever it is. And so uh, I, there's a lot, I'm obviously a big fan of synthetic biology, biomanufacturing, and this whole um, way of looking at the world. Uh, there's a wonderful book I can recommend by a friend and colleague of mine. It's called The Genesis Machine. It's by Andrew Hessel and Amy Webb, who's a famous futurist. And they take a look at a bunch of different ways that this type of synthetic biology paradigm can be coming into our daily lives moving forward, health, food, materials, all kinds of stuff. So that's the dream, right? The reality, of course, is that biology is hard. So a lot of times when I give uh, talks about this, like TED style talks, I'm giving a very, very basic thing. DNA is a coding language. It's an open operating system. Everybody works on it. Yay, hooray, magic. And inevitably in every audience, there's one biologist who will come up to me afterwards and be like, you left out the part about how hard it is. And I'm like, I know, because I don't have time to tell everybody about all the things that are hard about it. Biological systems are messy. They are incompletely understood by us, which is the fun part, in my opinion. Um, and sometimes what biology is optimizing for is not what the human is optimizing for, right? So we have to turn all these levers with these beautiful biological systems just to get them to do the thing that we want. And that's setting aside some of these ethical questions as well about, uh, you know, it's still exploitative to be using a living thing. Is that really different than what we've been doing for the 10,000 years prior to now, right? I might argue that agriculture is fundamentally a biological exploitation thing, but none of us would be here if it weren't for agriculture. So yeah. how do we move forward in a way where we are both being realistic about the limitations of this technology and the questions that need to be answered, but at the same time, keep ourselves open for some really exciting possibilities, right? You know, I can, I can picture a future in which our grandchildren um, think we were absolutely insane for killing billions of living sentient things every year just to eat parts of them. That is a very realistic future, cellular agriculture. Is it perfect right now? No. Do I have questions now? Yes. Am I excited to eat it? Yes. But there's still more work to do. And again, you can either see that as a challenge or as an opportunity. And so I think biomanufacturing is a huge opportunity because we still have so many important questions to answer. I have a lot of questions and I think that's going to have to be a future episode going into more of the risks around both biomanufacturing and synthetic biology more generally because I think it is, and, and you know that I care about this, it's fundamentally a very important question. But I want to close this out with a different question uh, or maybe a different statement perhaps to, to hear what you think of this. Devil's advocate would, would sort of say, well, you know, 
back in the Human Genome Project days, right, they promised gold and glitter in 1990, uh, got, you know, uh, millions of dollars, spent a time until 2003, and then kind of announced, we're done. And yes, th that was one platform, but now you're telling me this new protein platform just arrived last year, that's 2022. How many more of these platforms do we need? And because you said we don't have perfect knowledge, couldn't there be 500 such platform breakthroughs that we actually need to wait for before all of these very lofty ideas of truly changing the world through synthetic bio are, are going to fully transpire? Well, I sincerely hope there are many more of these platforms to come. I don't believe that we need to wait for them because if we wait until we know what we don't know that we don't know, that's an endless philosophical hole, right? We'll never get there. Um, you know, mRNA vaccines exploded into the world in the last two years. That's a huge platform um, approach that's actually been going on for several decades people just using it to try to fight cancer rather than to try to fight uh, an infectious disease. But the moment came where there was an opportunity to, to pivot and to really go for it. And that was really exciting. There's a, there's a series of these other ones as well. But this is what I love so much about biology is the more we look, the more there is to see. Whenever I hear people talking about the end of science, I think they're crazy. There is so much more about this universe, not even just the biology, but the chemistry and the physics and all of it that we don't know. The more we look, the more we see. And with human ingenuity, we always have the possibility to turn it into something even better. That's what I love so much about the natural world. And for me, though, that means that we have to really be protecting uh, we need to be protecting the world around us, right? When we talk about, for example, these 200 million known proteins that are known for animals or plants or bacteria or whatever it is that are alive now, we have this massive extinction event going on right now due to human activity. So we are literally throwing away the possibility of future innovation by not protecting our biodiversity until we can get to it and study it. So it's a challenge, it's an opportunity, and it's also, I think, a very grounding sense of responsibility that I know that I have uh, and that I would love to see more people have as well because we can't we can't wait for this knowledge we also can't throw it away in the meantime Tiffany this sounds like a good uh, incentive for all of us to go and learn more about biology synthetic biology and and as I think we will have to explore in a future podcast the, the the many risks as we are learning more about how little we know yet we are perhaps also forced to innovate within what we do know and and they're going to make these uh, you know these uh, breakthroughs are, are going to make real real changes in the world thank you so much for for sharing a little bit about um, it's a different take on the future of work I will admit Tiffany thank you for for bringing the the biological basis of of the work uh, of, of the of our careers into into light my pleasure You have just listened to another episode of the Futurized podcast with me, Trondarne Unheim, futurist, scholar, and author. If you are interested in my products or services, feel free to check out futurized.org store, where you can book a keynote speech, become a sponsor or partner, request a podcast swap, or buy a few of my books, such as Augmented Lean, Health Tech, Future Tech, Pandemic Aftermath, Disruption Games, or Leadership From Below. 
If you're interested in any or all of my projects, check out my website, trondundheim.com, which has links to other podcasts as well as my public appearances. Thank you. Please share this show with those you care about. To find us on social media is easy. We are Futurized on LinkedIn and YouTube and Futurized 2 on Instagram and Twitter. See you next time. Futurized. Conversations that matter.